Hi, this is Ibadi Anax, and this is The Candid Frame. First off, I want to just thank all the people who have been kind enough to send me emails recently. It's been really heartening. Well, it's heartening anytime I receive messages from uh, from the many listeners out there, but the emails that I've gotten really uh, recently have been very heartfelt, and uh, I've really, I always enjoy hearing uh, about why the show is important to you. And uh, I, I never get tired of, of hearing that. So if you if you like the show, or you've been listening for a while, um, I really would love to hear from you. You can email me at info at uh, thecandidframe.com. But even better yet, what you can do to help support the show is if you subscribe through iTunes, just write a short review there. We have a good number of reviews up on the uh, iTunes website already, but uh, more can't hurt. And it really helps to draw people to the show and make people aware of what we're doing here. And um, if you have a blog, or if you have, uh, if you're on Facebook or on Google Plus or Pinterest or anything like that, where you can share with your friends who are also interested in photography, that we're here and we would love to have more listeners. Please take the time to do that today if you haven't already. It's really greatly appreciated. Well, today's guest, Jacqueline Martin, was a photographer whose work I became aware of after seeing some of her images showcased on the NPR website, in which she's been focusing on albinism in Tanzania. It's a really interesting story, and the images really just caught my attention. And as I started reading more about the situation for people who are living with albinism in in this part of Africa, I think stories like this are really important for, for listeners to learn about and discover, because the fact is there are a lot of photographers out there that are doing stories not because it lines their pocketbook or, or provides them any level of prestige. It's just because they're really passionate about telling stories with their cameras and their photos. Photographs, and I think that needs to be commended and be recognized, and it's not done often enough. And I think today's show, I think, will you know provide just a little bit of attention to the kind of work that I think is really invaluable to us as people and as a culture. So if you or anyone else that you know of are working on really interesting personal projects of this sort, please send them to me because I know there's a lot of work out there that just is completely off my radar, and I'm really curious to find out about it. I may not be able to showcase it on the show, but I can certainly uh, share it in the growing community that we have here on, on the social networks. But enough of me. I hope you enjoy our conversation with Jacqueline Martin. This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by Adobe Photoshop Lightroom 4. Perfect your photography from shoot to finish with Adobe Photoshop Lightroom 4 software. There are a lot of different types of photographers out there. There are photojournalists, there are documentary photographers, there are landscape and wildlife photographers, portrait photographers. But one of the things that we all have in common is that we want a software that really allows us to see our vision through to that final print. And Adobe Lightroom has the best print module of any software out there. Since using Adobe Lightroom 4, I've been able to produce just wonderful prints of my images. And in a way that 
isn't burdened by having to hit all these different menus or sub-menus that were really maddening before. It's so simple and straightforward that it really gets the software out of the way and allows me to see my image on a final piece of paper, which is so gratifying and satisfying. And I want you to experience this for yourself. So why don't you download the free trial version of Lightroom 4. You can click on the on the link on the on the website at thecandidframe.com and try the and try the full version of Lightroom. Find out for yourself how Adobe Lightroom 4 can make all the difference in your photography. We also enjoy the support of Squarespace. Squarespace has this great product, which is Squarespace 6. It's a do-it-yourself website builder that helps you to make a website or a blog in just a few minutes. Squarespace handles all the hosting, gives you a free domain name, and has 24-hour customer support. Everything on the platform is drag and drop, so it's incredibly easy to use. For example, you can drag pictures straight from your desktop and create custom layouts with multiple columns and text that wraps perfectly around your images and videos. The templates are clean and crisp, very simple, and it puts the focus on your photography exactly where it should be. Additionally, you can switch to a different template at any time. One more thing that's really special about Squarespace is that your images will look great on any device because the website you create will scale automatically to fit perfectly on an iPad, an iPhone, a computer, or any other device. It's a challenge I've faced with my own websites in the past, and I know that this is definitely a boon for those whose websites need to look good on a variety of different devices. So import contents from your blog and push your content back to your social networks. Go to squarespace.com forward slash candid frame to start a free trial. No credit card is required. When you're ready to purchase, click enter an offer code below the pricing at checkout and enter the offer code candid frame 11 to get a 10% discount. That's squarespace.com forward slash candid frame. Offer code candid frame 11, one word, Candid Frame 11. Well, Jacqueline, welcome to the Candid Frame. Thank you for having me. Um, I got to see the work that you were doing in a personal project that you were doing in Tanzania, working with uh, the Obama communities down there. And when I saw that work, I, I knew that I wanted to have you on the show to, to share uh, about the work that you're doing and how it all came about, as well as, you know, some other aspects of your career. But why don't we start there? And why don't you tell our listeners what the project is about and and why you thought it was so important that you wanted to dedicate, you know, a good amount of your time to producing images and telling that story? Um, well, I'm a staff photographer at the Associated Press, where I do a lot of um, daily political coverage, and everything is very quick. Um, so I'm always on the lookout to, for a project that I can really sink my teeth into, um, take a couple, a couple weeks or a month, and, and really delve into an issue over a longer period of time. Um, um, I've been sort of historically in my work interested in, in vulnerable groups. Um, I've done work on immigration, um, people who are invulnerable in that way, um, people who are sort of in flux, and I have... Um, in the course of my research, I kind of keep an eye out for photo projects and, and articles that I find interesting. Um, and a few years ago, I heard about the plight of people with albinism in East Africa, specifically in Tanzania. 
Uh, people who have albinism, which is a genetic condition where you lack pigment in your skin, eyes, and or hair, um, are at a great risk of harm in East Africa. In Tanzania, or, or nobody knows why exactly, but there's a larger percentage of people in, than the worldwide average who have albinism, and there's a traditional belief in witch doctors and magic, uh, which have resulted in a black market for the body parts of albino people, um, killings and attacks, uh, and uh, it's at least 71 people have been killed since 2006. Um, so it's a very moving, moving issue when you hear about it. You're like, well, why, why would that happen? I don't, I don't understand how people could do that to other people. Um, and, and I had seen a really beautiful photography project. One picture in particular really caught my eye. Um, it just there's a very dignified human photo, uh, not of anyone who had been attacked, but of two students, uh, one with albinism, one without, in Tanzania, at a center, a protectorate center where that keeps uh, people with albinism safe from attack. And it was really a lovely photo. And, and I was curious that the photo was from uh, 2008 and is 2012 when I'm researching. And I'm wondering what's going on now. I really heard nothing since this photo project um, and some articles come out. And I wondered what was going on um, with the issue. And uh, I did some research and found there was a group a nonprofit locally called Asante Mariamu that does work um, on this issue in Tanzania. And I set up an, an interview <clears throat> and I went and I spoke with Susan uh, from Asante and she talked to me about the issues and the work that they're doing at the Kabanga Protectorate Center. And when you found out about it, you know, the whole idea in terms of you were curious in terms of what was happening now, but what what sense did you have of the story you wanted to tell before you you went there? Did you sort of have a story in mind even before you left, or did it take shape while you were there? Um, well, I had done research, and uh, and there's like a lot of many issues facing people with albinism. So I kind of made a, like an outline of the different issues that it would be good for me to take a look at. Um, so there's this belief in black magic and people have been attacked and I thought it would be good to find some people who had had an experience being attacked and, and to get their stories and talk to them about why that happened. Um, people with albinism are said to both be bad luck if they're around you. Uh, so you wouldn't want to eat with them or hang out with them or marry them. Um, but good luck if you use their body parts and magic potions, they're called zero zero, which means less than human. It's thought that if you kill them, they don't really die, and that if you kill them, and even if they even if they did die, they weren't really human beings to begin with anyway. So, mm. um, no big deal. Uh, and so, because of these attacks, they've put people um, put pe- children and adults with albinism into these centers to keep them safe from harm. So um, that was another thing I thought I wanted to go to a center, spend a good week or so there. And, uh, and find out what life is like inside a center. Um, the other thing I wanted to do was find out wh- what life was like for people uh, who were still living in the community, uh, how they were able to stay in the community, if they had been attacked, what life was like for them. Um, <clears throat> and so those were kind of the three, three areas. I thought I should find people who had been attacked and find out, just t- be able to tell their story um, be at a center long enough to really show what it's like to live in a center um, and then find individuals living in the community to, to compare and contrast. So that was my overall um, general plan. 
So, but how did you engender those people's trust? Because you here you are a foreigner coming into their in their community, you know, with a camera asking to you know open up their lives to you. How did you make that possible? Because you know, even though you're traveling that great a distance, there's no guarantee that those people are going to say to yes to what they're asking. So, how do you sort of ensure that you have the opportunity to be able to tell their story in the way that you had, you had hoped? Uh, well, first thing, I did lots of research about the topic and the issues. Um, I read a, a paper that some students had done on, on you know, what this black magic and witchcraft stuff was about, what these beliefs were about. Um, I, uh, I interviewed the, the folks from Asante Mariamu in the States to find out what they thought w- was happening now with this population. Um, and through them, I was able to make a contact with a reverend at the um, Anglican Diocese in um, western Tanzania, a place called Kibondo. And, um, and I was able to contact him through an introduction from this nonprofit um, and told him what I was interested in doing, uh, those kind of three pegs I told you. And I said, you know, I, you're, he was doing outreach in that community and trying to educate the greater community about what albinism is. Um, and so I asked him to talk with me about what, you know, what he saw as the issues facing them. So I'd know from like a Tanzanian perspective what was going on. Um, and he was, uh, I, think, I think a key thing when you're talking to people, like first, it's really helpful to have an introduction, like I said. You know, Susan introduced me to Reverend Bart, who introduced me to the head of the center, who introduced me to people living at the center. You know, I would talk with the adults and tell them what I was interested in doing. And I would listen a lot, and I would ask them questions. And I found that these were people who hadn't really ever been asked their opinion. Their opinion hadn't been valued. Like I said, they're, they're seen as not being really, not really being people. Um, and, and they're very disenfranchised and just not, not understood in any way and, and not listened to. And so not only the people with albinism, but, you know, uh, people who had pigment, so dark-skinned individuals whose children had um, expressed albinism or um, or had married somebody with albinism or vice versa. And, um, and all of these people really responded to being just listened to. Um, it's odd, but there is a weird, it was a strange dynamic that I didn't expect where something about being an American really struck a nerve in people, that I was an American journalist who cared enough to come all the way, halfway across around the world to tell their story. Um, and, and I hope and I feel that in speaking with them, and this was all through a translator in Swahili, um, that, that they could see that I cared about their stories and, and in turn they, would, they opened up because they, uh, through our conversations, they got, ask me anything. Um, and through our conversations, when I was just as open as they were being, they, they really did open up. I also feel like... Um, I was I was really trying hard to do humanitarian photography, um, which is to basically put a face on this issue, um, to to humanize the issue. So it's not just people being hacked with machetes and this very grotesque image you hear of, um, but individual people with with stories and families and life experiences. And I think the, the people that I interacted with, whether over a whole week or just for an afternoon, really responded to that. 
What were some, what were some of the challenges that you faced out there? Because as you mentioned, you're, you know, people saw you as an American, which in some way opened, opened doors for you. But I suspect that, you know, that, that, that people, considering how they feel about people who are albinos or, or have, you know, some characteristics of that, um, might not be willing to talk to you, might not willing to even have you around to sort of, you know, shine a light on something that they'd rather not talk about. So, what you know, was, did that play a part in your ability to be able to tell a story, or were there other challenges that you faced that had nothing to do with that? Uh, well, the issues in speaking with people was not, not so much with the people with albinism who, like I said, I would kind of explain my motivations and ask them questions and, and sort of get them to open up through that process. The, the problem was more... Um, I mean, this is an embarrassing international issue for Tanzanian government and, and the greater Tanzanian society. Um, it's, I think there's a reason there hasn't been a lot of reporting in the last few years because they really clamped, the government really clamped down on what kind of reporting was going on. Um, and I basically went in associated with the nonprofit and the church and had introductions. So people with albinism who were being protected or assisted would trust me because of that introduction. Um, but in the, the greater area, I got, I got lots of questions from um, like average Tanzanians about, you know, what are you doing here and what are you trying to say about Tanzania and, um, uh, you know, why people with albinism? We have lots of people here that need help. And you know, that was a very difficult question to answer. Um, there's tons of really heartrending issues going on in the developing world and in, in Africa. And there's also a lot of hope and beautiful things happening. And um, overall, people in Tanzania really opened their hearts and their homes to me, whether they had albinism or not. And and I was very touched for that. And and by that reason, I'm I'm trying to be very respectful of the greater society um, because even though. These these beliefs in traditional uh, in traditional beliefs, I don't agree with them, but they're not my beliefs, and it's not my society. So all of those issues um, were really a tightrope that you had to walk. Uh, another issue I had logistically was the distances between places, and also the, um, the, the because this is a developing country, uh, one of the places I stayed in. Um, didn't have electricity at all. Another place I stayed in had electricity, but only until 10 o'clock at night, and then everything went black. Um, <clears throat> there was not, some places didn't have running water. One town had just had electricity installed the year before, so that town was in a period of transition. Um, and then just the distances, the, and though there are more people with albinism in Tanzania than in other parts of the world, the average is higher. Um, despite that fact, there's still like one in several thousand people will have albinism. So we have to go great distances to find people, um, and introduce, and introduce me and go through the question process, um, and get people to trust me. And then we'd have to leave. <laughs> so mm. very much time on the ground outside of my to really kind of bond and blend in with people. The last sort of issue that was really what was really hard and I don't know how successful I was at um at bridging this was that I was basically a walking carnival for people. I, I will say that people's heads exploded as I walked by. It was just this is a very rural part of Tanzania. People had gotten electricity and I'm this, you know, white American lady at, with cameras and where's your husband? And it was just, <laughs> 
it was crazy. Um, people just didn't didn't get what I was doing, and it was it was very confusing for people. And also, I was like a sideshow. So, and he, it's just impossible in some of the places I was, unless I had spent way more time to do this American idea of photojournalism where you're a fly on the wall. It was not going to happen. Anywhere I went, there were crowds of hundreds of people. So how did you have to sort of adjust the way you were photographing? Because, you know, you're not there just to produce a whole bunch of photographs. You know, just, you know, you're here to try and tell a story. So the choice of what images you make and how you make them are really critical to succeeding in being a, in, in, in with respect to your to your storytelling so how how do you sort of balance that out i mean you got all those you get the logistical challenges you get the time restraints you you know you get a, a story that's sort of changing each day that you're shooting as you discover new facets of of, of the issues so how how you know, what do you do to ensure that you come back with images that really are complete rather than feeling like you got this big hole um, mm -hmm. that, that you know, that that would result in you feeling like I really didn't get it? Yeah, that was very nerve wracking. And I had many sleepless nights during this project um, where I was very concerned about exactly those things. What am I getting? Is it making sense? Am I telling a story? Am I doing these people justice who, who's really opened up to me and put a lot of trust and faith in me? And it, I feel that's a very large responsibility. Um, and it was doubly hard because I didn't have a reporter with me. Um, I was on my vacation time. I wasn't backed by any organization. Um, so there was sort of this all on me. <laughs> and I was also recording audio and experimenting with video. So I, I did probably too many things at, <laughs> at the same time. Um, but one of the things I did to try to keep myself on task was I had uh, not exactly a shots list, but sort of like a concept list. And I would add to that. I have a big file on my computer and I would each night I would write all my notes from that day and I would add it to this large file. So people's names, uh, their quotes, all of the information that I had gotten. And so I would try to not just make an edit of the photos each day, which I think is important, just to have an overall idea of what you're getting, um, but also to have a file of information that I could return to to figure out you know, where the holes were or what questions hadn't I asked. I also made a list of kind of like what sort of pictures I was getting. So I knew I hadn't, I knew I was missing an overall from the center and I, and I had, a, and I had looked and I was missing, I didn't have very many detail shots. So the next day was, okay, I'm going to do an overall and I'm going to get a bunch of interesting details at the center. And I would go and focus on, on, on that to try to make sure that I came back with, with something that was solid. Um, but yeah, when you're working on your own like that, it's very difficult. Um, I heard a lecture by Ed Cashy uh, once, and he was saying that he will go and work on a big project for a few weeks, a couple, two to three weeks at a time. He said about two weeks is about as much, and then he'll need to go to go home and to start editing and figure out where he's at, and then he'll return. Um, so I'm in the return, I'm in the back home big edit process and I'm considering whether it would be worth whether I could gather something more from a return trip or 
Um, if it would be better to just make a tight edit of what I have, I mean, those are still, I'm still kind of in the middle of that process. Yeah. What are some of the the challenges that you face in terms of getting the, the pictures and the story out there? Because, you know, the number of newspapers out there are, are dramatically reduced as a result of the consolidation or just completely shutting down magazines uh, that used to dedicate, you know, several pages to stories like this are, are more focused on celebrity than anything else. So, you know, when you come back and you have this, this, this body of work that you think is really important for audiences and readers and viewers to see, you know, how do, how do you, what do you do to make sure that it gets out there rather than just being images that are relegated to a hard drive? Right. Yeah. And that, that was another thing that kept me up at night. I, not, I want these photos to have a life. I don't want them to die a slow death on my hard drive. Um, so uh, I did a couple of things. Uh, first, as I, um, you know, I knew, I knew the general story that I'd be working on. And um, I'm working out of Washington. I'm involved with several photography organizations. And um, I have a good network of photographers and photo editors that that I'm friends with and have relationships with. And, um, And I had reached out to several of them before I left. And I just said, here's the story I'm working on. I'm going to be working on it. I'm going to be working on it on my own. Uh, I'd really love for you to take a look at it when I come back. No pressure to use it, but I'd really value your opinion. And they responded um, to that positively and said, you know, we'd really love to see it when, when you go when you come back. I'm also fortunate in that um, as a staff photographer with the Associated Press, um, I have I have the the wire as an outlet. Um, and when you're on staff, you can you can put pictures onto not the wire, but into our archive that you've done on your own time. Um, and it's a contributor program, so it's similar to um, if I was contributing to a an agency. But in this case, the you know pseudo agency is the Associated Press. So I knew that I would have that as an outlet um, where they a distribution system for the pictures. Uh, so I went, you know, and worked over there. And then when I came back and spent some time, I gathered up kind of a big edit and, um, I showed it to those, those, I showed it to the AP and I showed it to, um, those editors who I had identified ahead of time as possibly being interested. And one of the editors, uh, is the photo editor at NPR. And, um, she really liked the photos and thought they might be a good fit for um, NPR's the picture blog, I mean, sorry, NPR's the picture show, which is their photography blog. Um, now, that's not a paid uh, outlet, actually. The picture show is not a paid um, venue, uh, but it is a good way to get out, get your work out there. And then, um, and so I was sort of talking with her about that and thinking about what I should do. And then um, she gave me a call and, and said that NPR was going, unbeknownst to her, when we had previously talked, NPR was doing an article on this very topic and they were interested in using a couple photos with the article and they would also um, be able to do this blog posting uh, with the portrait series and that would involve photographer interview as well. Uh So I I let the AP know about that and cleared it and we were all good to go and it was just very fortuitous. Uh, Something I'd like to point out is that, you know, you have to put your out there. You can't just expect it magically to get its own life. So it's a lot of shoe leather, you know, and work and, and not being scared to send your work out um, to people that you admire. Uh, I'm fortunate in DC because I, I can actually have a one-on-one relationship with, with people and it's a very giving photography community in my experience. 
Um, but you have to just, you have to, you can't be afraid to put it out there. And, and I sent it to, I sent a link to several editors that I never heard anything back from. And I still haven't heard anything from them, despite it, you know, being on NPR and being um, distributed by the AP. So, you know, you win some, lose some. Mm. Um, don't put yourself out there. The work will go nowhere. Yeah. Well, this this was a personal project. So you did it on your own time and your own dime, and it's very different from the work that you day to day you do day to day as uh, a stringer for AP. AP. So why don't I'm you? Exp- a, I'm a staffer. Oh, a staffer. Okay. So t- tell us about what that life of a photographer is as compared to what you you know this sort of these long term projects that you do for for yourself because it's it's a markedly different way of working. Oh yeah, so I'm on staff with the Associated Press where I've been for the last six years. Uh, and I work out of Washington, um, and we do uh, a, a lot of daily work, and it's pretty generally, the focus is the big news story of the day. Um, I cover, currently I cover political Washington. I've been really privileged to cover major national and political assignments, including work at the White House. I've traveled with Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Um, and so it's a very high-pressure, very fast turnaround um, kind of a place. And I think that's just not just the wire, but the increasing nature of American photojournalism. Um, I have friends that work at the Washington Post and, and I'll, I'll be saying, oof, you know, I gotta get this out there. Really gotta get it. And they'll be sitting next to me on their computers going, oof, I gotta get this out there. <laughs> quickly. So, um, you know, it's turned into a 24 seven news deadline, which is both exciting and challenging. Uh, but also it doesn't leave much space for long-term, uh, for a long-term approach and long-term projects. So that's why I've tried, I carve out vacation time each year to work on personal projects, to slow down, focus on one topic, really dig, uh, really dig into one issue um, so that I can understand it better and continue to grow as a documentarian. One of the challenges that I've always admired photographers that do the kind of work that you do is that you have to create a single image oftentimes that tells a story that has all those elements in there where a person can take a look at it and sort of have a sense in terms of what was happening or what was sort of the crux of that that visual element. You know, you don't have the luxury of having two or three images to be able to, uh, to, to, to do that sometimes. But I sometimes see, and I see it in some of the images that you have on your on your website, that you also bring in um, the aesthetic into it in terms of the composition, and, and it's interesting uh, photograph in terms of light, in terms of you know uh, uh, overall composition. And for me, I feel like wow, that must be an incredible headache sometimes to trying to balance those things out, trying to create an image that tells a story, but that's also just visually pleasing. So. How do you know how, how how big of a challenge is that, or is it just the fact that you've done it for so long that it sort of becomes sort of innate innate thing for you? Well, that's the trick, right? I mean, Washington is an incredibly competitive place uh, to work in, and it's also a repetitive place to work in in terms of um, you know you're you're on Capitol Hill, you're at a a hearing, you have crappy lighting and like bald guys in suits and it's, <laughs> it can be really it can be really challenging it's a lot easier when you're with you know secretary clinton in south africa than it is when you're on the hill you know with boehner so it takes it takes a um i think it's really important 
to add an, an aesthetic element to the pictures because otherwise who's going to bother looking at it? Um, and it also is, is challenge for me as a photographer and it forces me to grow and everyone here is so good at it. I mean, they're amazing. It's really a privilege to work not only with everyone at the AP, but at the other wires and the newspapers. I mean, it's, it's really good. So you really got to be on your game uh, when you're working here. Um, but yeah, I try, I think it's important to, photographers have a style. And, and the, the balance, I think, in what I do with daily work is keep, keeping an aesthetic style while at the same time tells the story of the day. I can't get so wrapped up in my artistic photographic vision that I don't tell the story. Um, you know, I need to, I need to show what's happening with these arguments over the fiscal cliff. For example, I can't just make something so artsy and out there that no one knows what, what it's visually trying to say. Mm -hmm. So and, and that's honestly what keeps it, you know, interesting every day. How can I both make sure the story of the day comes across and keep the viewers interested so that they'll see that picture and it will draws them into a story uh, which is ideally on something that they need to know as a citizen of this country and, and even a citizen of the world, per se. Um, so that, that is very challenging and, and very important. Uh, and that aesthetic element is something that I take great pride in for my work. Um, I don't always succeed, but every, you know, every day you get up and you try, you try again a little harder. Can I say one thing? I didn't. I wanted to make sure that I mentioned a couple other of the things about um, the issues facing people with albinism. I had a couple other. Should I touch on that later? Or no, go ahead. Go ahead, do it right now. That'd be fine. Okay. So I just wanted to mention um, that yes, there are all, there were all these these killings that were became they they're high, it's like a high profile type story when you think of like the killings. They're very shocking. Um, but there's other issues facing people with albinism that are that are also very difficult and kind of adds to their plight. If you manage not to be attacked, there's still further challenges. Low vision problems are endemic to this condition. So children need to be close to the blackboard or be provided magnifiers in order to succeed in their studies. Um, but with the greater society being scared of these kids, they're often relegated to the back of the room. Other students don't help them. They don't get special attention. So um, that is an educational issue. And, you know, they, they can't be outdoors at, at high noon. And if you don't have a good education, your options are pretty much working outside. Mm. And, uh, and there's very little education about what albinism is or how people can protect themselves from the sun. So rates of skin cancer are very high, and most people with albinism are reported to die before age 40 from cancer. Wow. Um, the type stigma, it just so much issues facing them, and it's you know more complicated than I ever knew uh, when I started out uh, on this issue. Yeah. So I imagine that the ability to be able to tell these longer-form stories is both satisfying you know, because you get to focus on something that you feel passionate about, but also it just gives you a little more, I guess, creative latitude in terms of the kinds of images that you make. And can you talk about the role that that plays in, in, in terms of what you do as a photographer? Why, why is it important? And, 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 and why do you feel like it needs to be a part of what you do? Um, well, these, I kind of think of them as different skills that are separate from each other, but also intertwined um, in that when I'm doing daily work, I really need one picture that sums up the whole greater story. 
And when I'm doing project work, I need a series of pictures that work together to tell one story. So either way, you're telling people stories, the story of the day, whether it's, you know, a big news story on Capitol Hill or, you know, this issue in Tanzania. Um, but it, but they are, they sort of have their own different skill sets. And, and I've always, I've always been interested in project work. Um, I think it helps you grow as a photographer and a journalist. Um, the challenge of telling a story in mo- many pictures that have to work together. All of that I find very challenging and I think it helps, it helps. I don't want to stagnate. I think it's really important to continue growing, you know, as a photojournalist. And so, you know, the daily work, it's challenging. It's important. Um, It pays my bills, you know, (laughs) like it's a, and it's really a privilege, especially in Washington to be able to kind of help tell the story of our country as it progresses. So I take all of that very seriously. Um, At the same time, I've always really loved, being able to meet regular people and find out what their lives are like and share those lives with other people you know, through my work. And so I'm finding it to be a really good fit for me, actually, to do this daily work um, in, in my staff job. Uh, and, and I'm much more informed about every policy and the things that how our country works now than I was before I started working in Washington. Uh, and I'm grateful for that. But at the same time, I'm able to take you know, a chunk of my personal time, uh, because I make a decent salary and I can work on something that I think is important for the world to hear about, regardless of whether someone pays me to go or not. Well, one of your earlier projects was the train to El Norte and, uh, which is the story of, uh, migrants from, uh, Mexico and and Central America who use the trains to get uh, over to the United States. Why don't you tell us about that, about that, that story and the whole process of getting the images for that? Because just looking at the photographs, you can see that there were some obvious physical challenges that you face in terms of being able to get the images, much less, and not least of which, you know, was getting the trust of people to, to, you know, allow you to photograph them. That was a personal project that I did um, during the period of time when I was freelance. I had gotten laid off from my newspaper job. The newspaper had closed overnight, um, and I started freelancing and decided that I could use the time that I had to tell a story that I was interested in. And immigration is an issue that I had started delving into in my time in Alabama. Um, and I had heard of this story about <clears throat> the migrants who, who basically hit, hitch a ride on top of these freight trains. Uh, it's a dangerous way to get to the U.S. They face lots of issues. Um, and I, even though the story had been told before and told amazingly, uh, the L.A. Times won a Pulitzer Prize for their work on the same topic several years before I delved into it. Um, I still thought that it was worthwhile and that I, I, there was some, I was hoping there was something I could bring to this story. Um, so I went down uh, to Mexico and yeah, there, there are several issues. It's a dangerous story. Um, you had to kind of proceed with caution. I scared the living daylights out of my father (laughs) doing this story. Um, there, and it's even more dangerous to do now. Uh, so the way I approached the story was kind of similar to how I approached the story in Tanzania. Um, in that I did, I did research and I made contacts um, with with uh, both people who had done work on this topic before to find out what I was getting into. So I had made contact with a local journalist through uh, an introduction, and they 
Um, and they took me to, to the border region and they took me to the first shelter that I went to, which was on the Guatemala side. Um, and, and it was tough. I mean, people were very suspicious of what I, you know, what I was doing there. I had the benefit of, I speak Spanish and I understand the culture. I had done work on immigration for several years in Alabama and kind of did my Spanish skills and really delved into the cultures. So I, I hadn't, I had that helping me. Um, and again, I would have conversations with people and find out how they got, how they decided they needed to take this route to the U.S. Um, and we, we talked a lot. But still, the the first shoot in Guatemala was a little, people didn't know what to make of me. And I didn't, frankly, get that much from that shoot. Uh, a few days later, I went to a shelter on the, the Mexico side of the border. And lo and behold, the same migrants who I'd met in Guatemala were had now made it to the second and we were greeted like old friends. Oh, Jacqueline, yes, yes. Like, it was crazy. They were really happy. Like, I'd made it. They'd made it. And, and then I was able to follow the same group of people through the next several shelters. With, with that particular project, because that was early on in your career, how would you describe the differences in terms of how you approached, you know, the subjects, how you shot the, the images and told the story? Well, I kind of I have this technique that I used then and I still use it and I recommend it to students, uh, which is I um, I make a friend. So basically I go into a situation, I've got cameras, I'm like sort of frightening, right? They don't, people don't know what to make of me. And I kind of work the room and figure out, you know, who can I make a connection with? And so I make a friend, I make a buddy. And then that person, once they trust you, will kind of introduce you to other people and tell them that, you know, look, she's okay. Like we can trust her. This is what she's up to. Um, so making a friend <laughs> is uh, is a really useful technique, and I and I still do that to this day. I mean, it's actually a very similar approach. I mean, I kind of put in Tanzania. I put myself into the center, and I stayed there. In Mexico, I put myself into these various shelters, and I stayed there. I, I think the key is, is time so that people can get to know you. And and I think photojournalists, when they're in the field working on longer stories, you really got to develop a gut sense of who you can trust. Hmm. And, you know, and, it, and I was pretty young, and there's probably, like, there were probably dangers I didn't think of at the time that I might take a little more pause with. I was by myself. I didn't have a reporter. I didn't, I wasn't backed by an organization. Actually, this all sounds very similar. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and I kind of had this sense that I'm, you know, as I'm a foreign journalist and I'm protected. Definitely now that would not protect you. Now in parts of Mexico that could actually put you in, in more danger. So, uh, but I, at the time I took what I thought of as calculated risks. I decided that I needed a photo on the train. And so I rode the train with a group of migrants who I had been um, spending time with and felt in my gut they could be trusted. So I rode the train with them, but man, it was scary as hell. It was really scary. <laughs> and you're on there overnight. I think we were on there. I was on there like nine hours. Uh, the train didn't leave until nighttime. There was like a, a redada, which is like they had a, they, there was a place where like they stopped and everybody got off the train and ran. I mean, it was, it was a sketchy story. Um, if I did it again, I probably wouldn't, wouldn't do it alone. Well, in in general, the 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 life of a photojournalist has is just rife with challenges. 
not just the kind of challenges that you've described in telling the story, but just in terms of making a living, just because of the changing face of, of journalism. So considering all that's happening and how sort of unpredictable it can be in terms of making a living from, from it, why do you think that this kind of work is important? And more importantly, why do you think you, you feel a need to be part of it in, in telling these stories? I think because the market is so much smaller, it's more important than ever before that passionate journalists go out there and tell the stories that need to be told, um, that they think are important to be told. I think there's a real danger in our current society of sort of this entertainment society. Or even if you look at somebody's Facebook feed or Twitter feed, like they decide what's important to know about, right? So, and you can kind of pick and choose your news. Um, and it's sort of like eating your vegetables, right? Like it's, it's up to American society right now. Everyone's just going to be eating ding-dongs and ho ho. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and at the, you need some fiber, you need some broccoli, you need to know what's going on in in your world. And if if the outlets are going to be more and more interested in entertainment because that's where the money is, um, and I can't tell you how many entertainment and sports assignments seem to get done, and there's a shrinking hole for news. There's a responsibility to those of us who have taken this path for our lives to get out there and tell the stories that are important and find a way to make funding. I mean, from Kickstarter to save, making your own grant, which I personally really believe in, you know, saving a little bit of money every week. And at the end of the year, you have a few thousand dollars, you can work on something or working on something closer to home. Um, uh, Facing Change is this amazing group of photojournalists uh, that I really admire. And they're going out there and just, they sort of make their own funding and they figure out a way. They're working with the Library of Congress and they're telling the story of the recession and the parts of America that are hungry and poor. Um, and those aren't, you know, sexy stories. Those, those stories aren't even in demand by the public because they're hard to see, but they're important to see. Well, my last question that I ask my guests is to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Can I say two? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, great. Um, so from a personal project perspective and someone who just really inspires me with, with her perseverance and her passion uh, for the topic is uh, the photographer's name is Amanda Lucidon. And Amanda started um, working and it's developed into this huge project uh, called the Legal Stranger Project. Um, it's at LegalStranger.com and it's about the Defense of Marriage Act and same-sex couples. And she started doing stills and moved into video, taught herself all this stuff, and it's going to end up in a very large uh, documentary film. And I just find Amanda really amazing. She had no funding, no backing. She's a freelancer. She's just really passionate about this topic. Um and she's really delved into it, and it's amazing. So I find Amanda a, a really shining example of someone who took a personal project, a personal vision, and, and put their own time and energy into it. And, and I just know that good things are going to come for her from this project. And it's really amazing storytelling. The second photographer is Ross Taylor. Ross is a staff photographer at the Virginian Pilot. 
And um, he started a website called Image De- uh, The Image Deconstructed. It's at imagedeconstructed.com. And it's a website that examines the mental approach um, behind photography and photojournalism. Now, Ross is an amazing photojournalist in his own right. Uh, he's done lots of long-term projects and has won a ton of photo awards. But he started this website for free up there on the Internet. I highly recommend that your listeners check it out. Okay. And where can people find out more about what, you, what you're doing? You can look at my work on my website, which is JacquelineMartin.com. It's uh, J-A-C-Q-U-E-L-Y-N Martin.com. And I'm also on Twitter at uh, Jacqueline underscore M. Right. Well, thank you so much, Jacqueline, for making the time for me and uh, on the show. It was, I really enjoyed talking to you, and I, I hope that more people get the opportunity to, to see not only the work that you did, uh, the Tribe of Ghosts that you did in uh, Tanzania, but also your, your other work. Uh, and I really commend you for, for going out there and fighting the good fight in terms of you know, really strong and, and, and important storytelling. Thank you so much. It's, it's really been, been a pleasure to speak with you as well. And I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to talk about, about this project, which is very close to my heart. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.